is a battle coming. The war has already begun. It has raged unseen for millennia. And though we often struggle to see the conflict for what it really is, all of us can feel its effects. We wrestle with the powers of sin and death on a daily basis, and sometimes, in our darkest moments, it can feel like we're losing. But the word of the Lord tells a different story. Hope echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. Despite the mystery that surrounds it, the book of Revelation offers the people of God a clear message. Fear not tomorrow. Tomorrow is one. So church family, I invite you to pray with me. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, I just rejoice in these moments that we get to do what all creation does, what all the angels do, what all the saints are going to do forever in heaven. We get to praise you. We're here not only to praise you, but also to hear your voice and to be reminded that you have overcome. So let this be a day of victory for us. Work in our hearts peace and joy, all because of Jesus, our Savior. And now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I wanted to ask, what do you think makes a good church? Give you time to ponder. What do you think makes a good church? It was a while back that I read a book called The Surprising Insights of the Unchurched. And there I came to find three different things that the unchurched were looking for in any church. Number one, no pressure here, but it was the preaching. They were looking for a good sermon, something they can relate to, something that teaches well. Thank you, Lord, for having the power of the word. Do you know, by the way, my confidence is in his power, not my own? All right, number two, you ready? The doctrines of the church, that what they actually teach, how they stand on the word of God, that's what's going to draw different people in different ages. And number three, friendliness. They want a place to belong and be loved. They want to know that they are cared for in any church. Now, I give you a chance to kind of uh, think about that, but I want to have a group exercise with you. In your worship folders is those blue things. Could you write down for me, maybe now or sometime during the sermon, something that you love about Amazing Love? So what is something that you love about the church? We would love to hear from you on that concept. You might ask, well, pastor, what do you love about the church? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> do you know why I'm part of this church, Biden, and why I love it? We have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You heard that? And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, guess what his word is? The same yesterday, today, and forever. And what I love about our church body is we are a church body that recognizes God has not changed his mind. He didn't get enlightened over time to, to be more thinking like we are. No, God has had the same mind from the same time that he wrote the Bible, gave his word, and he's reliable because of it. What keeps me here is a preservation of the truth, the truth of God's word. So I've given you a chance to think about yours. I gave you mine. We, we, we heard some others. But you ever wonder, what is God looking for in a church? You ever thought that? There are about 300,000 churches in America. And as he looks down on 300,000, is he saying to every one of them, what do you think? Well, by the way, again, welcome if you're new to the church. Welcome if uh, it's your first time joining us online. We're just hoping that you see the, the centerpiece of the church, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. He loves you more than you know. 
Um, but when it comes to Jesus and how he viewed the church, uh, I have a picture for you. This is, this is his vision of the church. Didn't you remember that day? Some of you remember uh, being the bride all dressed in white, getting your hair done, getting ready to walk down the aisle. Uh, some of you might have anniversaries about this time. Remember that day? Uh, some of you are on the other side of it like I, watching a bride come down. Whoa, yeah, it's awesome. It's a good deal, isn't it? That wedding day, all dressed in white. And when your God refers to you, he sees this picture. Because our God is one who has changed our filthy rags for robes of righteousness. He looks at you and he says, beautiful because of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we get pictures of today in Revelation. So as we get into our series on Revelation, uh, hopefully you found out that this is not literal language, this is a lot of figurative language. And so when he refers to the churches today, he's going to call them lampstands. And what is a lampstand? It is something that gives light to everyone around. That's God's picture of the church. That even if people disagree with Christians, even if they're not part of our community, they would look at us and be like, wow, there's something different. Those guys are kind and they're forgiving and, and they're patient and they're, they're generous. Like, wow, why do they do that? And I'll tell you why. Because God made you to shine. God made the church to shine, to be a safe place and a beacon in any community that people would gather. And he's got another picture today. I kind of like this one. Do you know what church leaders are? If you've ever led in the church or if you're a pastor, he refers to them as stars. If you ever tried to lead something, if you're trying to go out on a limb for Jesus Christ, be part of gospel ministry, he says, you're a star that I hold in my right hand. You're an instrument for me, and I care about you. I'm guiding you. I got you. And so if you're taking notes and you think about how God views the church, this is our first takeaway, that God loves the church more than anyone else could. And this is, by the way, a pastor's confidence. That even when I can't be perfect, even when I can't be there, even when I can't say the right thing, we have a God who can for you. And that would make the strength of any church, that, that God loves his church. God loves his church. And so we're going to dive into Revelation. And as I said at the beginning of the service, we're going to get a, a series of churches. We're going to talk about seven different churches. And it's interesting that there are different interpretations of this account of Revelation. Now, I want you to know that one interpretation is that these seven churches represent historical periods of the Christian church. It's an interesting interpretation to go through the first and then the second and see them as, as different eras of the Christian church. I want you to know that's one interpretation. But I also want you to know that I don't agree with that interpretation, and here's why. I believe these are literal places that Paul planted, and I believe that you're going to see God's guidance to these churches is relevant in any age. That it's not just, well, that was a relevant word in that age or that era, but rather you're going to see his advice, his consulting, it is relevant in any age. So we're going to talk about literal churches, and then basically what we're going to do is we're going to see how, how God is kind of taking care of us. And one of the reasons I believe God speaks into church life is this. Isn't it true that if you love something, you can't just let it be. Anyone love their car? If you love your car, guess what you do? You wash that baby. You put a layer of wax on it. 
You get, you get one of these trees and it makes it smell good. You vacuum it out, right? Make sure that baby's humming, right? All right, some of you are not car people. Uh, what about a kid? Isn't it true? If you love a child, you're not going to just let them be. You're going to guide them. Go here, don't go there, eat that, don't eat that, right? You're, you're pretty in tune with what they need because you love them. They're not just going to be. So if I tell you that Jesus loves you more than you know, you need to know he's concerned about where you're at right now. And he's not looking down on where you're at, but he is always, always, always going to call you up like a good parent. He's always, always, always going to want more for you, maybe than what you want for yourself. And it's through the lens of the word of God that he then calls you up and makes you better if you listen, if you have a humble heart. And so here's what I hope is going to happen in these lessons. That you're not going to make it an academic exercise about what any church needs, but you're going to make it a personal exercise about God speaking directly to you. Because, by the way, you are the church. The church is not a steeple, it's its people. You are the church, and so what I'm hoping is that you're going to take these consulting tips into your own heart, and it's going to guide and direct you. Sound good? So let's hear from our first two churches, the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna. Something I love to do to honor God's word is I love to stand as we hear it. Could you stand as we hear the word of God? And I'll try to describe a few things that are going on. To the angel in the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, that's church leaders, in his right hand, and walks among the seven lampstands. Those are those churches, and this is all about Jesus, by the way. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. We'll talk about that. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place if you go back real quick, I want to describe this. It's an interesting thing. Have you ever heard of a church close? Do you know a church can close? Do you know actually Ephesus closed? There were a lampstand that was taken away. That church no longer exists. The church on earth will always remain, the Christian church. But a local church, if they don't repent, can be taken away. All right, uh, go on. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that, which I also hate. Whoever have ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, picture of heaven. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life. We know who it is who died and came back to life, right? This is Jesus Christ speaking. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. How awesome. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That second death is a reference to hell. It is a literal place, uh, very clear in Revelation and other parts of the Bible. Please be seated. May God bless our conversation of the word of God. You know another thing I love about church? There's a lot of goodness that happens inside the church. 
I don't know about you, but some of the very best moments I've had and some of the very best people that I've met are inside the church. In fact, uh, many times I hear of just great stories of great activity going on. And I wanted to share with you something great that just recently happened. We have some teens going to youth rally, and our church was able to raise $2,400 to help send them to the youth. That's pretty incredible. In fact, I have some pictures of those who are helping out, those who are hired out. Uh, Here's my daughter, Bella. Here's Ryan and Nate, Harley. It was awesome. And you hear not only that these young people really tried to help in good ways, but also that those who hired them out were really kind to them as well. It just kind of warms the heart. Just kind of warms the heart. And I don't know about you, if you ever have this in your life, when you hear about something good that happened to your kid or something good that happened to a family member or someone does something good to you, it just feels good, right? In fact, and I don't mean to be hugely political, and I know there's nuance here, but that's why many Christians rejoice at the, the news this past week of the reversal of Wade versus Roe. Now, again, we want to protect moms, and sometimes they're hurt, and I think there's still rights to, to guard that. But, but Christians know and they love when babies are protected. They, they love that. They, they love it when, when the laws of the land protect the innocent who don't have voices for themselves. Because God did knit us together in our mother's womb. God did ordain all of our days before one of them came to be. Before a mom or dad had you in mind, God had life in mind. And so something that I found, and it's our first takeaway. Well, before I get there, I guess there's the other side of the good. Um, If we love good, isn't it also true that we can't tolerate certain things? That you hear of certain news items and certain activities done among people, and there's something that just kind of churns your stomach. Uh, For example, when I hear of people who are bullied or manipulated, when I hear of people being taken advantage of, when, when they're oppressed, when I hear of even heavier things like sex trafficking and abuse and the Me Too movement, isn't there kind of like this turning in our stomach I was reminded of the words of a psalmist. Psalm 15, written by David, says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? The one whose walk is blameless, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. And and where am I leading? It's our first takeaway. So now we can fill in. That I believe a good church, a good church, and good church people will love what is good. They'll love it to hear those good stories, that kindness, that mercy, that grace, but also we'll kind of get sick when we hear the evil. We'll kind of be, oh, man, that's not good at all, right? And that's where the church of Ephesus was. So as we turn to our our first passages, um, bring those up on Ephesus, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Like, you're up to good things. You know the good things to do. You're pursuing the good things. Way to go. But I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. In fact, later it says that you hate what the Nicolaitans do. And by the way, that's a little bit of an open question, but many commentators say that the Nicolaitans were people who used uh, grace as a license for sin. So they're like, because God is forgiving, guess what I get to do? Because God is forgiving, I get to indulge in whatever I want to do. And some would even say it was sexual immorality. Which, by the way, is nothing new. If you read from the book of Corinthians, 
Do you know that the Corinthian congregation, as they were gathered, they said, God, you're so merciful, you're so forgiving, guess what we'll allow? A son with his mom in a bad relationship. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet what we know is that we can't tolerate this. And in fact, what we can't tolerate is those who are false apostles, those who are promoting wickedness in the name of God. Now, is that going on in the Christian church? Are there those who represent God and promoting evil? Yes or no? It's going on, friends. It's going on. There are those who come in the name of the Lord and promote evil and say, do this, it's all right, go for it, it's okay, no worries. God would want you to do that. That's not good. How do you and I stay on true center? You and I have a responsibility. If no one ever told you this, you have mercy and grace, but now you can't live in ignorance anymore. Are you ready for this one? If no one ever told you this, you have mercy and grace, but now you can't live in ignorance. It is actually your responsibility to make sure that the pastor is preaching truth. Do you know that? It is your responsibility to make sure the pastor is preaching truth. And the way you do that is you refer to the Bible. In fact, the Bible says that there were these Berean Christians who were of more noble character. And the reason they were of noble character is because when Paul preached, and he's pretty reliable, <laughs> when Paul preached, they went back to see if what he was saying was true. That's all our responsibilities to make sure that we're not being led astray. But, but I was thinking of the ridiculous nature of what it was to promote sin as if it were a good thing. And I found this illustration. Maybe you'll go with me here. Um, I considered it kind of like a, a young boy who borrowed a car from dad. And, and while the young boy was borrowing the car from dad, drove recklessly, drove wildly, and then this happened. They wrecked it. And dad only had liability on the car. And in this hypothetical situation, think that dad now has to buy a new car and he's got no insurance money. And so he has to get a second job to pay not only for the new car, but of course for gas because it's a relevant story. Um, this is what's going on. Now, if that happened and you were that young man, would you be proud of what you did? Like, hey, guys, it's so great. I took the car out. Like, totally totaled it. It was awesome. It's a non sequitur, right? It does not follow. So for us, when it comes to the evil in our lives, how great, how good to know Jesus has covered every bit of it. There is no sin that we can't mention that isn't been covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. How awesome. Doesn't matter your flavor of sin, and we all got a flavor. It is covered through the cross of Jesus Christ. How awesome. But how weird would it be if we as a people said, oh, isn't it great what I used to do? <laughs> the thing that killed Jesus. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't follow. And so here's the truth. It is good to love what is good. It's good to love what is good, and it is also good not to tolerate evil. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. That's righteousness. That's what God is guiding it into. But now I need to warn you. Because there's a temptation for those who love good and hate evil. Are you ready to hear of this temptation? Here's a temptation. It's hard to get it right. I want to bring up the, the parable of the prodigal son. You ever heard this parable? And, and what we know in the story is one of the sons who asked for the inheritance from dad, spent it in wild living, uh, got so bad that he was feeding pigs and wanted to just come home and be a slave, and dad welcomed him home. 
You, you might remember that, like, the, the, the glory of that story is God saying, basically, you can come home and you're not a slave, you're a son. I have forgiven you. But does anyone remember the older brother? There were two sons. Do you remember his reaction? So dad is throwing a party for the, the person who came home, right? And the older son doesn't want to go at all. In fact, look at what the older son says when dad calls him. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never give me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This is a man who loves the good and hates the evil. Can't you see that? Can you see that? He's talking about, I've been working for it. I've done the good. And here, I hate the evil. But what has he forgotten? He's forgotten the proper motivation of serving God. And that proper motivation is not self-righteousness. It's not trying to get something from God. It is just thanksgiving. He's lived so long loving the good and hating the evil that now he thinks he's better. And this is a warning for us all. A warning that if you want to pursue this principle, the devil, the roaring lion, he will try to change your motivation. If you work this principle of loving the good and hating the evil, he'll change your motivation into trying to now, instead of an expression of thanks, it's rather a reason for entitlement. That's why God is merciful. That's why I get good stuff, because I love the good and hate the evil. And that just isn't the case. And so as we continue, um, we have what the next passage is over the Ephesus church. It says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And so what is the love they for forsook? It's an understanding of God's mercy and grace. You know where we all start in Jesus Christ is remembering that he would save a wretch like I. That I have no entitlement to this mercy. Someone who understood this is a theologian, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton. And the story goes that he read a newspaper article that said, what's wrong with the world? And he actually wrote into the newspaper, and he had this to say. He wrote to the newspaper and said, dear sirs, I am. <laughs> Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Isn't this an honest man? Can't every person write in with that same title, you know what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, Pastor Dustin is the problem. And when I am there, it's then that the beauty of Jesus, who would trade my rags for riches, who would trade my, my filthy gown for a, a pure gown, it is then that he shines so beautifully. And so you know what a good church does? Next takeaway. A good church loves the gospel first and foremost. And the gospel is that of Jesus Christ. Jesus who helps us when we couldn't help ourselves. Jesus who loves the unlovable. And the beautiful thing of the gospel is not us, it is always him. It is that he would die our death, rise again, and give us his righteousness. I need to hear that every day. I need to be reminded every day of this love that I don't deserve but have so lavishly. 
be reminded of the glorious riches of his grace, which is yours and which is mine. And when we do that, it's then that we keep our true center. We are no longer better than anyone else, but we also know that we're loved. We no longer live our lives trying to prove ourselves. We're just giving thanks to our God. And so your homework this week, something to take away, something to do this week, our next step, it's this. It's to end each day with a prayer of repentance to be renewed in God's love. Because if you end each day and, and, and you repent, what you're doing is first you're reminding yourself there's still evil in me. But you're also reminding yourself, true repentance, that God has covered that. And I am loved and I am free. When we do that, we don't wake up the next day thinking we're better. <laughs> when we do that, we don't wake up the next day serving God saying, well, I'm entitled to your goodness. No, repentance keeps us in true center. All right. So that is our first letter, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Sound good? And, and maybe you did or didn't know this, but we got a double header today, a double feature. Um, so congratulations for that. So we got to dive a little bit now into the church of Smyrna and see what's going on there. And, and to set this up, I'll, I'll never forget um, this story when I was a kid of uh, when my, my buddy's dad got a new truck. Uh, it, was a, it was a Ford F-150. Um, this is 1998. And uh, I loved cars at a young age, and I looked at that car, and I'm like, that's just a beautiful car. And, um, and, and I remember them kind of noticing, picking up on the fact that I was impressed with their F-150. And, and I forget exactly what I said, but I think I referenced a little bit that you guys must have a lot of money or something like that. I probably just didn't say you're rich or something like that, but, but they were picking up that I was impressed, right? And I'll never forget what they responded to me. They said, Dustin, well, you know you're rich. I pause, and I'm like, um, have you seen our station wagon? <laughs> like, the ceiling is caving. Do you remember when the ceiling would cave on cars? Like, that was a problem. Kids go, now, you don't even know about the ceiling falling down. That used to be a common thing. We had this Pontiac that was this, like, gray, maroon, beige ugliness going on. I'm like, uh, you have a Ford F-150. I have this, this Pontiac. We are not talking the same language. What do you mean we're rich? And then they explained. Well, your dad's a pastor. Your life centers on the church. You're rich in Christ Jesus. Now, they were members of our church, and they understood what riches were. And isn't it true that there are certain types of riches, and some better than others? Spiritual riches matter, don't they? Now, when we come to the church of God in America... We are some of the most materially rich people who've ever lived. I mean, just study history. Just study what's gone on. Study what other people have. We're some of the most materially rich people that have ever lived. But how are we doing spiritually? Would you say that we are the most spiritually rich country, the most spiritually rich people that are living right now? I was talking to a seminary professor who got back from Africa. I was up there for a presentation, and he was telling me his experience in Africa, that there were so many people to baptize that he couldn't get around to all of them. I'm like, that almost seems like a sin. Like, you can't sleep if there are that many people to baptize. <laughs> but that's the problem in Africa. There were so many people who loved the word, wanted the word, wanted to, to be baptized and know Jesus, that he didn't have enough time to do all that work. That's incredible. 
I was talking to Pastor Jeff and, and hearing of the dedication of people who would come to worship, how long they would walk, what they would do in order to be there and hear the word of God. And it's not just stories. Pew Research would back up the fact that in parts of Africa and Latin America, they are way more dedicated to worshiping regularly, praying daily, and seeking the Lord. Some other countries are richer than we are. And as we consider the words to the church in Smyrna, what first he says is this, I know your afflictions and your poverty, but you are rich. And what he's trying to get us to understand is this next principle, our next takeaway, that a good church values spiritual riches. A good church and good church people remember that it's not all about material things. We can't take them with us. We remember that true riches are those that last eternally. My connection with the everlasting Father. The connection our children have with their everlasting Father. And when we do this exercise, when we understand what's truly rich, it's then that I think we run to worship. And we run to communion. We remember our baptisms and we rush our kids to get baptized because there we're going to pass on true treasures. When all our other toys get broken and fade away, it is then that we get these true treasures and we run and we rush to have what God gives us. But have you ever learned that the rich get rich and the poor get poorer? It's funny that this is a principle that works even in life. The rich get rich and the poor get poorer. The rich sometimes have more opportunities to get richer and the poor, less opportunities, the poor get poorer. And I think actually this is something that happens with spiritual riches. That sometimes the rich who know Jesus are given more and, and they get richer. And the poor at times can be taken away and get poorer. But the question is, if we want to be the rich who are getting richer, how does this happen? What's interesting, as we turn to what the consultant is going to do, he says is what's going to happen. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Let me teach a little bit. This isn't a literal prison. You're not going to go to Smyrna and find like the devil's prison where he gathered them all. Not what he's talking about. This isn't a literal 10 days. 10 is a number of completeness, and 10 is a short number, which just says that for a short time. So if we interpret this, here's the interpretation. For a short time, you're going to be in a season of suffering. Does that make sense? For a short time, it's going to be a hard season. And I consider what happened in Smyrna and how it works in so many lives of Christians. I consider Mother Teresa, who refers to the dark night of the soul. I consider Martin Luther, who referred to something called his anfektung, which is really fun to say in German, anfektung. Kind of this oppression on him. I consider David, who is known for saying, I am worn out from weeping, and I have flooded my bed with tears. These are rich spiritual people who God has made richer, but how? Through suffering. Through suffering. Suffering is the refining fire where true character is built. Suffering is not easy, but is often what God uses to make rich people even richer as they see a God get them through. And so you know what a good church does? A good church is not surprised by seasons of suffering. Not only because we know we live in a broken world where not everything can go our way. We already know that concept. But also because we know 
if we're true with our heart of hearts, that sometimes we're not on a good path. Sometimes there is some refinement that God needs to do in our hearts and our lives. I was reflecting on a man named Moses who had a period of suffering. Moses who killed an Egyptian who was beating up a Hebrew slave and because of this had to run away into a desert, uh, in the desert for 40 years uh, before the other desert experience. Uh, There he got married, he had children, but he reflects on his period of, of running away. And in Deuteronomy it says this, that in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling wasteland. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Moses is real with the fact that this wasn't a good place. I was in a barren and howling wasteland. That was not a fun season. But what is God doing? He guarded him as the apple of his eye. You know, friends, sometimes I wish it was a little bit different. I wish, like, God, could you just test me with good times? Could you refine me with a lot of blessing? That'd be awesome. But I know there's a bit of ignorance in that statement. Because I know sometimes to really refine my faith, it is through the dark nights. It is through the hard days. It is through the weeping. That he changes my comfortability to character. You might be in a season of suffering, but here's what you also know. You have a God who will never leave you. You have a God who's working that seasoning to make rich people richer. You have a God who says you have victory in the end. And this season, it will, it'll end. It'll be 10 days. It's not going to last forever. But let us not be surprised. Let us not hold it against God who's trying to love and refine us. Let us remember that even in those dark periods, he's working good for our sakes. So here it is. God is our consultant, and I don't know about you, but I think it helps us get aligned back to true center. I don't think you're going to want to miss next week. Next week is maybe the most relevant for where the Church of God America is today, the Church of Laodicea. You're not going to want to miss it. Come back. But now let me pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how good you are that you should call us your bride. Though we know the ugliness of our sin, you've replaced rags for riches and filth for cleanliness in your sight because of Jesus. Thank you for him. From a place of humility and love, help us to pursue good and hate evil. Help us to accept your guiding hand in any circumstance while unafraid because you're right there. Bless your church, build your church, and let us be a people that offer you great praise. Amen. All right. Well, now as a church community, we get to encourage one another. The way we do that is we confess a common faith. Uh, Today we use the words of the Nicene Creed to confess who God is, what he's done for us. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right.